Hey, Mama. I know getting meals on the table for your family can feel tough, especially finding weeknight-friendly meals that everyone in the family will love. There's a good chance it's why you're here, at least I hope so. Helping moms take the stress out of feeding their family is my biggest passion. It's why I share with you here, and it's why I created the Healthy Mama Cooking Club. If you've ever wished this podcast came with a weekly done-for-you dinner plan with a shopping list and meal prep tips, or maybe a recipe library with over 200 family-friendly recipes, cooking tips, how-tos, and hacks, well, it does, and it's all in the Healthy Mama Cooking Club over on Patreon. Starting at just $3 a month for access to our 200-plus recipe vault with printable PDF recipes, or $5 a month for weekly done-for-you dinner plans, plus the recipe vault and bonus podcasts every month, the Healthy Mama Cooking Club is the dinnertime solution you're looking for. Head to patreon.com slash healthymamachris or click the link in the show notes to try it out for a week free and join over 130 other busy mamas making weeknight meals work with the Healthy Mama Cooking Club. I can't wait to see you in there. All right, let's get on with the episode. Living a healthy, balanced life is no small feat, especially when you're a mom. With meals to cook, laundry to load, work to do, and humans to raise, it can be easy to feel like we're in an on-again, off-again relationship with healthy living. But it doesn't have to feel this way. I believe living a healthy life has become way too complicated. What we need isn't a new plan or program telling us what to eat or how to live. We need simple, uncomplicated routines and information that's going to help us live our best, most beautiful life without rules and restrictions. Join me, Kristen Dofniak, holistic health coach, certified intuitive eating counselor, and mama of two for weekly conversations on what it means to live a healthy, balanced life, uncomplicate eating, and simplify in every area of mom life. Sometimes parents just don't realize how correlated their children's moods are with you know what they're eating and more specifically how much sugar they're having because they've yeah. never really seen their kids when they're having less because they, mm. you know, some of the parents, for example, that have done our challenges have said, wow, I had no idea that so much of this was being caused by the sugar in their diet. Hey friends, welcome back to the Healthy Balanced Mama podcast. I'm Chris Dovniag, your host. And I think most of us know on an intellectual level that eating too much sugar isn't great for us. It's refined. It is the root of a lot of health concerns. And for the most part, I think those of us who are health minded do our best to avoid a lot of added sugar. But the truth is there is a lot of hidden sugars and added sugars in a lot of the ingredients and the foods, especially processed foods that are marketed towards our kids. And there are so many health concerns, including things like mood health and brain health that can be linked to excess sugar consumption in our kids. But you know it is the Healthy Balance Mama podcast and we're all about balance around here. And so we don't want our kids to go crazy and we don't want to go crazy telling our kids that they can never have sugar again, which is why today I am so excited to have Dr. Emily Ventura and Dr. Michael Gorin on to share with us how we can help our kids to reduce some of that excess sugar in their daily 
meals help to improve their health outcomes now and in the future. We talk in this episode about some of the health concerns that are linked to excess sugar consumption in kids, but also how we can practically reduce that sugar in our kids' meals without, like I said, going crazy. We can replace instead of just removing. We can have a balanced approach to lowering the amount of sugar our kids eat, and we can have real conversations with our kids to help them understand why we don't want to be eating a ton of excess sugar, but without causing further problems and hangups around sugar and around food. So this was a really, really important conversation on not just the effects of excess sugar in our kids, but on how we can practically start to make some changes to the meals that we serve our kids in a way that is simple and doable and puts our kids at the helm so they have the choice so they can start to learn how to eat more of these nutrient-dense, lower-sugar meals without feeling deprived. Today's guests are Dr. Emily Ventura and Dr. Michael Gorin. Dr. Emily Ventura is a nutrition educator, public health advocate, writer, and cook. A California Bay Area native, Emily completed her undergraduate studies at Cornell University and went on to complete her master's in public health and doctorate of philosophy in preventative medicine at the University of Southern California. Emily has 10 years of research experience in public health with a focus on dietary strategies for the prevention of obesity, diabetes, and cancer. Her research has been published in scientific journals such as Obesity, the Journal of Pediatrics, and the Archives of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine. She's also co-written op-eds with Dr. Michael Gorin about diet and children's health, which have been published in the Los Angeles Times, the Huffington Post, and the Washington Post. An advocate for community health, Emily has worked as a nutrition educator for children and families, including interning at the Edible Schoolyard in Berkeley, California, and teaching and managing programs in the greater Los Angeles area for the California Nutrition Network. An enthusiastic and experienced cook, Emily loves to get kids and their families excited about eating well by encouraging them to source fresh seasonal ingredients and prepare them simply. She was invited by the Los Angeles Times to conduct pantry makeovers for LA residents in which she helped them restock their pantries and refrigerators and refresh their recipes to make them healthier. Emily has led public health campaigns for Slow Food International as well as the Jamie Oliver Food Foundation. Recognition for her work has included receiving the National Cancer Institute's Trainee of Excellence Award and being selected for the EHOW 100 list of women who have made innovative shifts in their careers and have had positive impact on their communities. Emily has spent extensive time abroad including studying food and culture in Ecuador and serving as a Fulbright Scholar in Italy, where she taught public health nutrition at the University of Gastronomic Sciences and conducted research at the University of Verona. Emily now lives in the UK with her two young sons and works as a writer and recipe developer. Michael is a professor of pediatrics at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California, and program director for diabetes and obesity at the Sabin Research Institute. Dr. Gorin is a native of Glasgow, Scotland, and received his PhD from the University University of Manchester, UK. He previously served on the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Vermont, the Department of Nutrition Sciences at UAB, and the Department of Preventative Medicine at USC. His research on childhood nutrition has been continuously funded by the NIH for the past 35 years, raising $75 million in funding and publishing over 350 peer-reviewed articles. He has received numerous scientific awards for research and teaching, including the Nutrition Society Medal for Research, the Lilly Award for Scientific Achievement from the Obesity Society, the TOPS Award for Contributions to Obesity Research from the Obesity Society and the Rank Prize Lecture in Nutrition. Michael lives in Silver Lake, Los Angeles with his wife, Lori, his two teenage daughters, and their cat, Hugo Moon. Outside of work, Michael likes to play tennis, cooking, eating, going on walks, occasional runs, and travel. Without further ado, let's talk sugar with Dr. Emily and Dr. Michael. 
Welcome, Emily and Michael. I am so excited to have you on the Healthy Balanced Mama podcast talking about sugar and our kids today. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Hi, Chris. Nice to see you. Thanks for having us on. This is such an important topic. I know both of you know that. Um, And I'm really excited to dig into all of the ways that sugar affects our kids, because I think many of us understand that sugar is not great for us. Lots of added sugar isn't great for us, but understanding the practical application of how do we encourage our kids to eat less sugar? How do we do it in a way that doesn't drive all of us crazy? Um, and why this is so important is something I'm, I'm really excited to dig into. But before we dive in to the meat of our episode, I love to ask a fun little icebreaker to all of my guests and especially for authors. I love to ask this question. So what are the both of you reading these days? Yeah, I um, am almost done. With the marathon project, the 900 page love songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. I don't know if you've heard of that book. Uh, it's phenomenal. She's a former poet um, who wrote it, and it's about um, it goes into a, the history of a family uh, in, in, in the South during whose history involves slaves and how they broke free of it. And it's really beautifully written. 800 pages but I'm almost done (laughs) wonderful and I just got a copy and on the other side of the fence I got Prop Acid David Perlmutter's new book the author of Grain Brain which is has a lot of echoing a lot of what we say in Sugar Proof Mm. um, about the science of uric acid and metabolic health so it's a a mixture of the uh, keeping up with the science and just reading for reading for for fun as well Mm, I love that. I am very much the same. I usually have something fiction and something nonfiction on my bookshelf at every time. (laughs) What about you, Emily? Great question. Well, I've got kind of a mix. I'm reading a pretty heavy title at the moment um, because um, I'm still healing from some trauma that I went through when my husband died three years ago. Mm -hmm. So I'm reading The Body Keeps the Score, which is super heavy Mm -hmm. and I have to take it in small doses. So, you know, for fun, I'm picking up other things like some of the cookbooks that I've purchased in the last few years and haven't, you know, I've flipped through, but haven't really read. Um, So just recently, I picked back up Salt and Time by Alyssa Mm -hmm. Timoskina, which I absolutely love. And just looking again at all these wonderful fermentation recipes that she has and can't wait to try a few more of those. Oh, I love that. As a chef, I love hearing the cookbooks and as well as the the heavier reads, but The Body Keeps the Score is an incredible book. Any listeners who haven't read that and who have experienced trauma in any way, it's it's a really incredible read. It is definitely, definitely one that took me a long time to get through, but you know, yes. it's, it's one of those, you get a little bit from it every time you read it. So exactly, I love that. I love all of these suggestions. These are, um, you know, this is my favorite question to ask guests at the beginning because I get suggestions myself and then my listeners do too. So what's on, what, what's on your nightstand? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, well, I just finished your book. So I was just working oh, on you that. Did? You finished it? <laughs> yep. Yeah. So I just finished Sugar Proof and I just uh-huh. actually, um, I'm trying to think of Oh, this author, when we're recording this, this author's episode will already be um, out. So I guess I'm plugging a previous episode. But I also just read a book by Rebecca Rowland, The Art of Talking with Children, which was a really fantastic book about having conversations with our kids and how to have deeper conversations with our kids. And so I really enjoyed those are my nonfiction picks. And for fiction right now, I am reading Malibu Rising by Taylor Jenkins Reid, which um, I read her book, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. 
I don't know if I'm sure it's been going around on the internet as a lot of people love this book. And so I'm reading that as kind of like my, my fun fiction read. So yeah, that's what's on my bookshelf. Sounds great. I normally don't get to share mine. So I really love that you asked me that back. Sure. So like I mentioned, you two have a book together called Sugar Proof, and we are going to talk today about sugar and how it affects our kids. And I really want to start by talking about why this matters. And I think intellectually, a lot of us know at this point that refined sugar is not the best for us. But as you share in the work you do, it does creep in to a lot of our food products. And sometimes we don't know how much. So can we can you kind of give us a little bit more of a clear picture of how much it creeps in and why it's important? Yeah, it's a good starting point. So we're talking about 70% of processed foods, 80% of foods that are marketed to children contain some type of added sugar. Uh, but like you say, I think everybody, most people now know about this, but I think what excited us and motivated us, uh, well, Emily can see what motivates her, but I think the issues are a few things. One is that it's not just that we're consuming more sugar, but it's different types of sugar and it's confusing. Uh, and I think that is one thing we wanted to talk about, different types of sugars and non-sugars as well, sweeteners. Uh, which uh, are creeping into the market pretty profusely, uh, but also how really why and how children are more vulnerable. So we, I think, again, we all know the, de- the dangers of sugar, but most people think of weight gain, um, possibly diabetes, but really the effects are much broader than that and uh, affect children more so than adults because they're growing and their organs are being built. So those are some of the things that we wanted to to focus on. And and also, like you mentioned in your intro, really, well, okay, we know sugar is bad, but what do we do? Uh, We're not about just saying, okay, no more sugar. We wanted to come up with strategies that would be uh, practical and sustainable and simple for families everywhere to... Uh, use in, in, in every day. So we wanted to just marry the, the science as well as practical tools. Mm, I think that's so important, especially for busy parents. I think, you know, I am someone who loves to pick up new books and learn new things and learn new strategies for my health and the health of my family. But it can be a lot sometimes when we read all this information, figuring out how to really practically apply it can be really difficult. So this is, I think it's really important work that you're doing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think what we've learned is that some people like you like to to pick up a book and and read about it, but many of the many of the people that we interact with, they just want simple tips and simple mm-hmm. solutions how to get through a day without drowning in sugar and how to really try to to to, to cut back uh, and and improve the, the diets of their families. Mm, yes. So I realized that I I wanted to ask you, both of you, and I, I guess I didn't. We kind of jumped right in on why this is important. But where did the inspiration for writing this book come from? Where did this interest, this desire to study sugar and our kids come from for both of you? Well, I, I've been doing the research on this for over 30 years. So coming up on 35 years, I'm kind of losing count of the years. But 
Um, <laughs> it's been a passion of mine. This is what my career has focused on. I do research studies in patients and families, uh, trying to understand the nutritional components that affect kids' health and testing new strategies for for, for altering it. And I think what we've learned a lot, but there's a huge gap between what we found in the research and making it broadly available. My average paper is cited a hundred times or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like a 20 year gap or something between research and, and finding its way into everyday health, everyday use. So obviously I want to, that's not that's not good. We wanted I wanted to accelerate that. I wanted to speed up that process, and so I wanted to share the science and share the solutions. And um, Emily may, may may want to add to that in terms of her own motivation. But that's my that's my passion is just to accelerate that that uh, science to public health uh, impact. Mm. I think that's something that most people don't realize either is that it t- it does take so long for that science for that research to not just be done but then to actually start you know being applied in our everyday life in health recommendations and it takes a really long time and so I think yeah, it is important sure. that we have researchers and authors like you who are bringing this into more the mainstream sooner than it would otherwise and maybe yeah, health we recommendations. Ju- we just uh, we published two papers this month. One of them took five years to get funded. Wow. And five years to do the study. So that's mm-hmm. 10 years <clears throat> from from start to finish. <laughs> wow. Um, so you know and the other one maybe a bit shorter, maybe uh, six or seven years by the time you get funding and do the study and get it published. And also especially for the studies we do, we're following babies, kids long-term to look at the Mm -hmm. effects over time. So just by nature, those studies can take years and years and years. So we don't want another decade on top of that to reach the public. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So what about you, Emily? What was your inspiration and to, to write this book and to, to study this and bring this to the world? My background is a community nutrition educator, and I first got excited about the topic when I was working at the Edible Schoolyard in Berkeley, California, which is Alice Waters' flagship kitchen Mm. and garden program. And I just saw the transformative effects on kids when they had the chance to grow their own healthy ingredients and then take those into the kitchen classroom and cook. And it just brought nutrition education to life, and it really got me excited about the field. Um, And then I worked for a number of years in the community after that in different settings, and then ended up doing my graduate work in Michael's lab at USC. So I did my master's in public health, and I did a PhD in health behavior. And working on his research studies and just seeing those direct connections between how kids were eating and how that was impacting their health, and oftentimes in ways that wouldn't have been detected um, just from routine, you know, visits with the doctors, more all these advanced um, clinical tests that he was doing in in the research, you know, and and seeing some of these effects that, you know, were silent, but serious um, was a huge wake up call for me. And then I think the final piece was when I had my own kids and just realized that, wow, this is really confusing as a mom. You're busy, you're tired, you're in the store, you're not sure what's good. You're getting conflicting advice, even from sometimes from your own pediatrician. Um, 
And so Michael invited me to collaborate with him on this book. And it's been um, a great collaboration. And um, I've also had the chance to develop the recipes. Um, so I do have some additional previous experience working um, as a cook. And so I've really enjoyed working on the recipe component as well. Mm, well, I definitely like the recipe side of things too, because that's mm-hmm. that's one of the parts of the practical side of things. It's the knowledge and then it's, okay, how do we actually create recipes that are lower sugar that our kids are going to enjoy? And we'll talk about that more um, in a little bit. Right. Yeah. But I think that I very much am in a similar place where you know, I studied nutrition and then eventually got my culinary school or my I went to culinary school and got my degree in um, culinary arts because I wanted to share more about the practical side of how we can feed our families healthy food because it is, you know, not everyone, like you said, Michael, is a researcher who not everyone is necessarily going to read through the whole book. They might pick it up, skim it through and go, okay, give me the recipes. How am I going to, how am I going to do this? So I think marrying both of those is, is really, really great. Um, but I want to dig into, and I really want, I want you to speak to the listener on this why behind why excess sugar is harmful, because I really want to debunk the myth. And you talk about this in your book that sugar is a weight only issue. I know you mentioned this, Michael, that oftentimes we think of it as, you know, sugar is what's contributing to weight gain in adults in a lot of cases. But you know, something that I like to talk about on the podcast is that healthy bodies and unhealthy bodies can come in all different sizes. And I think sometimes we assume if our kids aren't considered to be obese, then sugar isn't affecting them. So what are some of the other ways other than weight that sugar can affect our kids' health and well-being? Yeah, that's one myth that we really would, would want to help bust is that this is just all about weight gain. Uh, weight gain is uh, certainly uh, can be an issue, but there's so many other things going on that um, precede weight gain or uh, happen with weight gain. I mean, so we're I mean we're talking in kids also about brain development, learning, its effect on the brain, on memory, uh, on academic performance, on on mood and disposition, and just general uh, emotional health, uh, and and then. We got all the inflammatory issues uh, associated with sugar, such as uh, skin, acne, uh, asthma, uh, and now, of course, um, inability to fight infections mm-hmm. like COVID-19, um, which we've learned the hard way as food is important in mm-hmm. fighting infection. Um, and then there's the, lo- the other thing is the long-term, what we call chronic diseases like Diabetes and heart disease, for example, to the main killers that we have in society today. And I think the issue is that we don't normally think of kids as having those um, outcomes. And thankfully, that's mostly true, although the incidence of diabetes in kids is increasing. Type 2 diabetes is what we're talking Mm -hmm. about. Um, but these are chronic diseases that are seated in childhood. And we've done the research on this to show you might not see more diabetes in kids who eat more sugar, but you'll see an increase in subclinical risk factors like rising glucose levels, poor um, beta cell function, or inability to really um, produce enough insulin. So those chronic diseases are happening over decades. 
And that over decades starts in early life, even in utero, actually. So there's that. And then there's the third aspect is the new the new diseases that are emerging, like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, mm-hmm. which wasn't even a disease 10 years ago. Um, but now you know, most liver disease used to be due to alcohol, but now we're learning that most liver disease is due to non-alcohol mm. and that non-alcohol is sugar. So liver health, we don't normally think about our liver, but it happens to be a pretty critical organ that gets damaged slowly over time by too much sugar. Mm. Oh, I think what's interesting about what you're sharing is most of this that you're talking about are things that happen over time that we don't see necessarily in our kids, right? We don't see their glucose levels being all over the place. We don't see their liver becoming inflamed or there being these, you know, issues, not a doctor. So (laughs) if I say anything that's incorrect, I'm, you know, just going off of what I know. Um, yeah, a lot of these are, are things that we we don't see our kids' glucose levels going up and down. We might see things like mood changes and may or may not associate which is that a, which is with... A, which is a very yeah. good um, indication because I would say mm. that you do, we do see it as parents. If, you're, you know, if, you're, if kids are like bouncing off the walls, <laughs> that means they're having a sugar high, right? Yeah. And if, if, if your kids are on the floor um, upset and crying, they're probably hypoglycemic, they're having a sugar crash. We don't we don't necessarily associate it with with their sugar levels, but that's what's happening. And we want to bring that to life just because as as adults, we know we think as adults, we think of our sugar levels and how we have to maintain it. And but we don't normally think that's important for kids, but it's more important because their kids are actually more susceptible to sugar highs and sugar lows. Yeah, and I'm glad and- you mentioned mood too, Chris, because yeah. something else that we do talk about in the book is sometimes parents just don't realize how correlated their children's moods are with you know what they're eating and more specifically how much sugar they're having because they've yeah. never really seen their kids when they're having less because they've, mm. you know, some of the parents, for example, that have done our challenges have said, wow, I had no idea that so much of this was being caused by the sugar in their diet. And then when they took it out, they said, wow, it's almost like I have another child. Like, whoa, you know, my child is more even tempered, less moody, um, you know, less lethargic mid morning, and more able to handle, you know, smaller challenges that might've otherwise set them off. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it can be a real wake up call, I think for parents to see these changes in a, in a positive way, you know, surprise, a surprising change. Yeah. Well, I think what's interesting is I think many of us associate sugar with that kind of immediate sugar high that our kids Mm -hmm. have, you know, they, you know, have the birthday cake. And then one of our strategies as parents is if we, you know, they do go to a birthday party, if we do know that they're having extra sugar or whatever, like, what can we do after? What sort of activity can we do to just let them sort of run it off? Because, you know, we're all about balance. We're not going to tell our kids they can never have birthday cake. Right. Um, But how can they maybe, maybe let go of some of that energy? balance that Mm -hmm. out a little bit because you know that that's coming. Um, But oftentimes I think we don't recognize, or at least I wouldn't recognize as a parent, or we definitely recognize the mood swings. I've got two girls, an eight-year-old and a four-year-old. So we notice those in many different ways. Um, Mm -hmm. But those sugar lows too, being, you know, if they're having tantrums, it could be that hypoglycemia and just the swings up and down 
that we, you know, I might have as a parent just be like, well, they're just moody, but it could be, you know, a very, you know, very likely it could be that they're, mm-hmm. they're having those glucose swings. Um, and so I think this is so eye opening for, for parents. And so I, I love that, you know, you have those challenges so parents can test it out and go, okay, wow, I actually do see a difference when, you know, we're actually taking out some of that sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think of some of the, some of the, research that I found most fascinating was the research on sugar's effects on the brain. I know we were actually talking about, um, you mentioned, you mentioned, uh, Dr. Perlmutter's green brain earlier, um, which I've also read and we've, you know, I've done some research on this as uh, for adults, but for kids, this affects, like you said, their learning, their memory, their growing brains, which now we send our kids to school because we want them to learn. And, you know, so how can, I guess it's kind of a two-part question. So how does this, if you have more specifics, how does this affect our kids' memory and their brains? And how do we know if our kids are having issues with sugar? Is it just the mood swings? Are there other signs that our kids might be affected by this? Is there, you know, something that might be happening at school? Well, yes. I mean, the research is pretty clear on this. It's not a lot of research, but what research there is, is quite clear that there's a impact of high sugar consumption in kids on their ability to do well on standardized test scores. Mm. Um, so that's, that's, that's quite apparent. Um, but, you know, there's other issues. Those, those from day to day are quite hard to, to pick up on, right? Um, but from day to day, what we found working with families is there could be issues like kids not being able to fully concentrate in class mid-morning. Um, and as Emily mentioned, part of the kind of wake-up call that some families got by going on Sugar Proof was literally kids reporting much more ability to concentrate and stay awake and not falling asleep in class. So those types of changes can happen pretty rapidly, actually. And that's why we we came up with the seven-day no-added sugar challenge, not to say you can never have added sugar ever again, but just to say, well, go off it for a week and see what type of improvements or changes might be noticeable. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, I think it is sometimes we just need to actually experience it for ourselves, for our kids in order to to kind of see those changes. I, yeah, it's so fascinating that it has a difference in standardized test scores. And I mean, how many kids are maybe experiencing issues with school or having trouble concentrating? And, you know, we, there are so many kids who, you know, hmm, I don't want to word this the wrong way because I don't I don't want to call anything out, but I'm thinking of different diagnoses and things like that that may or may not be true diagnoses in terms of concentration, things like that. Maybe maybe starting with sugar is a way to start and see, you know, if some of these problems are still are still there. So I find that really interesting. For sure. I mean, there's no there's not great evidence to show that high sugar, for example, causes uh, diagnosis like ADHD, for example. Um, but studies show that if you reduce sugar, you can improve the symptoms. So Mm, I'm not going to say, I don't know for sure if it's a cause that there's probably multiple factors, but definitely, uh, studies show that you can improve the, uh, day-to-day symptoms 
by, mm-hmm. by cutting back on sugar. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes so much sense. And I think anything that we can do as parents to help our kids when it comes to school, when it comes to learning, um, and especially behavior too. I've had several parenting experts on the podcast, and we've talked a lot about behavior and our kids and moods and things like that. And like, how much could we, you know, help that situation before it even starts <laughs> by just, you know, focusing on the food that we eat and, um, and doing it in a way that is appealing for our kids too, right? Um, because I think that that can be, I know that that's a struggle for parents is going, okay, I get that too much sugar is not great for my kids or us as parents as well. Um, so what can we do as parents to start recognizing the added sugar? Um, and I guess what are some of your tips for reducing and avoiding the added sugar in our meals? Our philosophy is very non-restrictive and we, you know, certainly, I think this is kind of what you're getting at, Chris, there is just saying, you know, we're not saying you want to be the sugar police. In fact, we specifically advise you not to do that because (laughs) that doesn't work and it creates a negative food environment in your home, which we certainly don't want and can backfire, you know, with some of these other possible um, effects, you know, potential eating disorders. So, um, what we, what we talk a lot about is creating a healthy food environment in your home. And, you know, you can set these patterns uh, when your children are really young, if they happen to still be really young, you know, just by having healthy food available in your home and not introducing a lot of added sugar early on. Um, but, you know, if your kids are older, then, you know, you can take you know, kind of a different approach, bring them alongside and have them involved in the process of trying out new things and, and coming up with some of their own ideas for new recipes that you can try. Um, and just, you know, basically displacing things um, not necessarily focusing so much on what you're going to take out, but focusing also on what you're going to add in. So there's really healthy, appealing things to eat at home. And a lot of the families we've worked with have said, yeah, that works really well for them because the kids are going to get exposed to a lot of sugar outside of the home anyway. And usually that'll sort of fill up like that, you know, those categories of like the extra, you know, cookies or whatever, they'll, they'll be having those probably at some point outside. And that's not to say that you can't also have them, you know, cookies in your home sometimes, but um, really, if you just think about what are the staples that you buy, um, because that's where the sugar starts to pile up, um, you know, all of these products that are marketed to kids that sound healthy, because they say whole grain or, you know, added fiber or full of vitamins and, you know, minerals. Um, so like the granola bars, the the um, flavored yogurt products, fruit snacks, all those things. Um, We just suggest taking a look at what are those staples that you're buying for your kids and, you know, could you replace them with different alternatives or could you be making your own easy recipes like the ones that we suggest in the book um, when time allows? Mm, Yeah, I really like that approach. But it is a lot. And we also, there are a lot of just simple uh, exchanges and switches that can be made um, to turn things around from what you put on your toes to you know loading up on fiber and protein if you're making pancakes and such like so for example what was for breakfast this morning what did you give your two little girls well, let's see. My girls are very different when it comes to breakfast. Um, yeah, so one of I my two, daughters, I have, I have is, two girls too. They're about yeah. they're ten years older than yours. So we, 
but they're I'm very sure you've different. had that same experience. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So one of my daughters loves breakfast and loves all types of breakfast foods. And yesterday she actually ate a breakfast burrito for lunch um, because she loves eggs. So she will eat eggs almost every single day. So great protein rich breakfast to start the day. Yep. Um, this morning she had yogurt. So she had whole milk yogurt, plain yogurt. We do a little bit of maple syrup on top because she likes it a little bit sweet, um, but that's all she had. That's all she wanted this morning was um, some whole milk Greek yogurt. So we got some fat and protein in there and a little bit of maple syrup for a little bit of a little bit of sweetness in there. Um, mm-hmm. And what am I, oh, my other daughter has smoothie because she loves smoothies. So she makes her own smoothies now. Um, so nice. she did a smoothie with I think she put strawberries that she puts a little bit of spinach in. This was a really good day for breakfast. So oh, <laughs> she, put, yeah. she, she, uh, she put in some frozen strawberries. She, she does like a tiny little bit of spinach, frozen strawberries. She did cashew milk because we had just made some homemade cashew milk. Um, and she has like a kid's protein powder, uh, just a little bit less protein in it. So it's a little bit more appropriate for kids. Um, so that's what they had this morning. But yeah. it was a good morning for breakfast. There yeah, are mornings, are. I will admit that, you know, they just want toast. <laughs> so. Yeah. So, you know, what you put on your toast, my, this morning, my daughter had toast, but she, you know, instead of putting jam on there, we've got into the habit of putting a fried egg white. She likes eggs too, Mm. but not the yolk unless it's scrambled, (laughs) (laughs) but fried egg, fried egg white, she's taken to that. So that's, you know, it's, it's it's all about trying to re shift the balance from sugar to more protein and fiber. Mm -hmm. And, you know, your, your kid's, Smoothie example is a good example of that. Throw a little bit of spinach in there, um, which that that's great. Not not kind of unusual for young kids, but that's great. Roll with it. Um, and the cashew milk is good. You could add some f- more fiber in there, for example. Mm-hmm. Top it with some chia or flax. So it's all about just kind of trying to reflip that balance of getting in more fiber and protein instead of sugar. Yes. Yeah. That is actually the struggle that we that we have with my one daughter who's not a huge fan of breakfast and she's in second grade now. So she's in school. And, you know, the last couple of years she was at home for a full year and a half. And, um, you know, we, we, we did homeschool for that, that year and a half period of time. And she did lots of schoolwork, but it's different than being in school and having homework and having all of these demands on her kind of learning that mm-hmm. she hadn't before. And so we try to have the conversation about you need to have a breakfast that's going to keep you full, that's going to help you concentrate for school. It's not as flexible as when you were at home. We were still following curriculum, but it was a little bit more flexible. And so she has a hard time with breakfast foods because she really would just eat toast every day. And so that's why we started bringing in the smoothie and we kind of try to have that conversation about, okay, let's make sure that there's some protein in here. She doesn't mm-hmm. like, um, her sister will eat, uh, will eat smoothies with some like peanut butter or almond butter in it. So they're not allergic, thankfully. So a little bit of healthy fat in there. She doesn't like that. So we try to find that balance and just go, okay, well, you've got your strawberries or your blueberries or whatever. She likes those frozen berries. Let's make sure we get a little bit of protein in. Let's make sure. And yeah, so I think the smoothies have been great for her because otherwise it is just toast because she won't do eggs. She won't do like a chicken sausage like her sister does mm. or anything like that. <laughs> she doesn't yeah. like yogurt. And so and that, it's so hard sometimes with kids. I know definitely. <laughs> so that, that, that versatility was important for us. So we, you know, as parents, we recognize that. And a lot most diet books out there are one size fits all. Um, here's your, here's your rest, here's your meal plan for the week, go for it. 
but we we know families don't work that way. <laughs> so um, we wanted to have maximal versatility um, on all of our recipes to, to suit not ju- not just differences between families, but like you're saying, differences within families because that's very mm-hmm. common. Exactly. And just to chime in, my two boys are very similar in that as well. They're six and nine and they have very different food tastes as well. There's some things that they both enjoy, but there's definite different like opposite tastes going on as well too. So it is very common. Yeah. And, you know, it's just about finding things that, you know, that are flexible and versatile. So you can be serving one meal, but the, you know, the kids can have choice within it. Because mm-hmm. um, giving them a choice also gives them that autonomy, you know, to feel like they chose what they're eating, you know, to within reason. I think that mm-hmm. that can be really helpful, you know. So putting their own toppings on things, sprinkling yeah. their own, you know, on things on top of smoothies, that kind of thing can be really helpful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that that's what's worked really well with our older daughter is just going, okay, well, why don't you come up with some ideas? Because she was just in a phase a couple months ago where she just didn't want anything for breakfast. And we're like, you gotta eat mm-hmm. something. So what mm-hmm. would you like to try? And that's that's where the smoothies came about. She's like, well, I would like, and she does them herself. And I would just sort of like guide and go, okay, make sure you've got <laughs> more than just strawberries and milk in your smoothie. Like, let's put something else in there. But she chooses. Like the other day, she was like, yeah, put some spinach in the smoothie. I was like, okay. And she's done it ever since. And which is great. She sees me do it because that's one of my breakfasts that I love to have in the morning too. Um, But yeah, I think that that autonomy, I think is really huge for kids. (laughs) Definitely. So speaking of our kids and kind of talking to our kids, I really want to talk to you both about teaching our kids about the kind of the harms of excess sugar and the marketing that happens around sugar in our kids. Because I know, like I mentioned, my daughter's in second grade now, my older daughter, um, so she can read. My four-year-old can't read. Um, and we don't actually have TV. We have like Netflix, Hulu, all that. We don't, you know, we don't have no TV, but they don't see commercials or anything like that. Like I know that I saw as a kid, I remember like cereal commercials and things like that, but there's still foods in the stores that are way more appealing to kids than just, you know, the, uh, I don't know, plain oatmeal container or something like that. So, so how do we, how do we talk to our kids? I know that I am very aware of how I talk to my kids about things. I know I shared with you both um, that I struggled with an eating disorder in high school. So that's something where I, you know, I'm so passionate about health and wellness and I want my kids to be healthy and grow up healthy and have this balance, but I also don't want them to struggle in the same way that I did. So how do we talk to our kids about this in a way that I guess is Okay. I guess it's the healthy balance mama podcast. So I can use the word balanced here, (laughs) even though I know that it's a balance is balance is not, you know, there's no one answer to balance. How can we talk to them about this in ways that are balanced and also kind of kid friendly so they can kind of understand why this is important? Two things came up for me as you were talking Um, first related to the marketing and, you know, even just walking through the grocery store with your kids and, you know, pointing out how some of these products are placed like right at their eye level. Um, You know, we talk in the book about helping kids be, you know, let them be the upstanders. So, you know, helping them, wow, see this tricky, this tricky marketing, you know, and then they start to recognize it and they'll point it out again. 
Um, you know, that's not to say that, you know, if they really want a certain type of cereal that has their favorite action hero on it, you, you know, you don't necessarily want to always say no to those things, because if you always say no, it can become very restrictive and kind of put mm. those things up on a pedestal and make them, you know, something that they want so badly that, you know, at some point they may just kind of go crazy on it or either that or become afraid of eating something that's, you know, quote unquote unhealthy, which you don't want either. So, you know, it's about, you know, maybe they can have that and then maybe they can have it, you know, maybe not every morning for breakfast or, but just on occasion, or maybe even consider that as something that would be had more as like a dessert, like a little bit Mm -hmm. of it after a meal. Um, So, you know, thinking a lot about, you know, bringing kids up to come into an awareness at an earlier age of how they eat is how they feel. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, yes, you can have some of the cereal. You might not feel great if you had that first thing in the morning, because it's not going to give you a lot of steady energy for the day ahead of you. Cause you've got all these great activities planned, but you know, what if we had some, a little bit of it later after you've had lunch or, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's the kind of conversation that I wind up having with my boys. Um, and then, you know, sometimes they're, they are going to overdo it, you know, at a party and that's fine. You don't want to end up shaming them or making them feel bad, um, for that, but just being able to have that open conversation about saying, okay, well, no problem. Yeah. You had a lot of cake and, you know, I understand your tummy's not feeling well and that's okay. You know, you know, just kind of learning from that experience and then maybe brainstorming for, okay, well, next time, what could we do differently so that you could still have some cake, um, but, you know, not feel bad because maybe you also didn't need the ice cream and the juice and the gummy bears that went along, you know, with it. Um, so, yeah, so it's just kind of a rolling open conversation, I think, that you, you can establish with your children. Mm, I like that. But you also have to get down on your level and figure out their internal motivation. So um, avoid using external motivations is a good rule of thumb in this situation. Like um, don't want to use food as a reward or money to help get them to eat something or not eat something. So you Mm want to find out what their internal drivers are, Mm -hmm. whether that's being an upstander could be, it could be something that your kids are motivated to do or, could be that they want to run faster or do better at school or fit into a new pair of jeans. I mean, it's all very dependent on age and context. So I think trying to figure out exactly what might motivate them on their level is very important. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting too, that that perspective. I I love all of this. I think it is getting on their level and having it be an ongoing conversation. And I'm just thinking about my own girls and, and, you know, being that they are four years apart, the difference in their motivation and just what they understand as I have these conversations with them, because like I said, I, I do try and have these conversations with them. Um, especially around just making sure that they're getting enough that protein and fiber with whatever they're eating, just so it does sort of balance things out. But I know my, my four-year-old's, it's mostly like, she's so funny. My, my kids are different in their food preferences, mostly at breakfast. They're a little bit more similar for lunch and dinner, but she is a grazer just by nature. She doesn't like big meals. She will snack all day long if we let her. And so we try and give her meals that have, that are going to hold her over a little bit more and are going to have that protein, have some healthy fats, have some fiber. And just so that she isn't constantly snacking all day long. And we try and keep pretty balanced snacks around the house. But we we talk about, you know, 
what's going to keep your, for my four-year-old, what is going to keep your tummy full? And so she is sort of made that one of her motivations, which is interesting. We, so she'll go, will this keep my tummy full? <laughs> well, we'll try it out and see. <laughs> Let's see if it'll keep your tummy full. <laughs> That's great. So, yeah. They love plantain chips and it's like, well, okay. Plantain chips are great. There's some fiber in those plantain chips. Um, they're the, they're like the salty, savory kind. They're not sweet plantain chips. Um, but maybe we can have some with some guacamole. And my, my older daughter loves plantain chips with guacamole. So that's just an example. That's like one of their favorite snacks is plantain Yum. chips. So we go, okay. I know. I love it too. So how can we, how can we add something to that? And so it is interesting thinking, I don't even think I thought about it that way. Um, but you know, my, my older daughter would make sense to talk to you about school because she's definitely and concentrating at school because she has definitely found that shift from, you know, having a little bit less structure over a couple of years to having lots of structure at school. Now Mm -hmm. that's where, you know, the whole breakfast conversation came in with her. And so that makes sense for her motivation, but the four-year-old, it's an interesting conversation too, going, what is going to motivate the four-year-old to not (laughs) want to eat sugar all day? Mm Yeah. But I think also not having that, you know, not having so many of those foods in the house too. And like you said, sort of having those other alternatives instead and that kind of replacing instead of like, this is what we're or kind of crowding out, I guess, instead of mm-hmm. going, okay, what, what are we going to, we're going to take away all of these, <laughs> these foods that they're so used to, but bringing in those other options instead of just going, okay, we're never going to eat sugar again, because that's going to make everyone in the house crazy. <laughs> and we don't want to do that. Um, so I guess um, I want to talk about, so the vast majority of my listeners are moms because it is the Healthy Balance Mama podcast. Um, and I hear from a lot of the women in my community. I talk a lot about meal planning. I develop recipes as well as the podcast. Um, so I hear a lot from the women in my community that their kids just won't eat certain foods. Like, oh, well, they won't, you know, they won't eat vegetables or my kids just won't eat protein. They just want to eat pasta every meal. How do we encourage our kids to, I guess, in how do we encourage lower sugar options for our kids and make maybe what are some practical things that you have on hand for your kids to that are maybe lower sugar, maybe snacks or meals, maybe your go-tos um, for the people listening, for the moms listening or the parents listening who are like, okay, this is all great, but how are we actually going to encourage our kids to eat foods that are not just sugar foods all day long? Wow. Where to start? <laughs> I know that was kind of a loaded. Yeah, question. that was a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah. Which, which part would you like to start with? How about encouraging our kids to enjoy lower sugar options and then maybe some examples. Okay. So definitely getting them involved and in picking out the recipe and helping make it is really helpful. And, you know, even if for, for example, that recipe might include something that they don't want to try in the end, it's still a huge win if they've got their hands on those ingredients and are helping pick it out. But if they did pick out the recipe and the ingredients, there's a lot, there's a lot, um, there's a greater chance that they will end up tasting it and trying it and liking it. Um, so, you know, having your kids flip through cookbooks, um, that have pictures if they're really young and, you know, flagging those cookbooks and in showing you what they might want to try is a fun activity and kids, Mm -hmm. you know, even as young as, three, four can, you know, put flags, paper flags in cookbooks, um, or talking with them about the, the different options or taking them with you to the market and pointing out things and picking out something new to try. Um, 
those are all great ways to go about it. And um, a lot of our recipes are really flexible. So for example, we have an energy bite recipe in the book and there's a, there's literally a table in there that says, okay, the component is dried fruit. So within that component, you could put figs or apricots or dates or raisins um, and coming up with your own flavor combinations. So, you know, then there's a category for nuts or seeds. So the kids could pick sunflower seeds or almonds or walnuts or you know, whatever sounds good to them. And then it's their own. So then they've got their own flavor combination, name it, and it makes it really fun. Um, yeah. So those are some of my favorite tips. But, yeah. I mean, it, it also doesn't have to be related to cooking. It could just be prepping, like Emily mentioned earlier, you know, sprinkling stuff on food. So like there's a great study that was done that randomize kids to either a regular high sugar cereal, like your frosted flakes and your honey nut O's, or they got just the plain old regular boring low sugar cereals that many families would say, oh, my kid's not gonna eat that. Mm -hmm. So they randomized them to these two groups, but they also gave them the opportunity to sprinkle stuff on top of it, to like put some berries on it or chopped fruit, um, or even to put, packets of sugar on it if they wanted to. Um, and what they found was that kids were perfectly happy eating the low sugar cereal and they were more likely just to kind of throw stuff on top of it to make it more appealing. Like you would put fruit on it or berries. Some of them did put sugar on it, but it was still a lot less than they would get from the high sugar cereal. And overall, at the end of the day, the kids who were assigned to the low sugar cereals had a much, they ate less calories, less sugar, and more fiber and more nutrients. <clears throat> so it builds on this issue of giving kids autonomy and having them make their own little concoction, which most parents would know kids love to do. If you think of like the yogurt bars, for example, where you go, you get the yogurt mm -hmm. and you put all the crazy stuff on top of it. Um, it's the same type of concept different different stuff that gets loaded on top it's healthy stuff but the principle is the same and that is that kids actually love that autonomy they love to kind of make their own little concoctions and so that's one way and, and you can apply that to many different scenarios but that's one way to get your kids to enjoy more of the lower sugar options yeah mm. It's a great point. And um, also just you know, letting them put their own food on their own plate can be mm -hmm. a huge thing too. And um, because some kids don't want things mixed, they don't want things touching, they don't want certain, you know, ingredients. So, you know, these flexible kind of family style meals um, can be really helpful. You know, if there's, you know, two or three vegetables to choose from, they can choose one, they can choose two, they can choose three, um, they don't have to have them all, they don't have to touch, they can, you know, like, um, that can be really helpful too. Mm, yeah. Oh, I love this. I think it really does come down to giving our kids the choice and giving them mm -hmm. that option and letting and getting them involved with the whole process. Because yeah, our, our kids do want to know that it's not just us telling them this is what you should eat, this is what you shouldn't eat. And because we want them to grow up and make those good choices for themselves and not have those hangups around food but have that, you know, that experience of trying these different foods. And so I love that having, you know, the, the yogurt bar type example where they can put everything on. And I love that. It was so interesting that the kids 
were very happy with the lower sugar cereal, but they put on their own toppings and all that. And I think that's a, it was a good point that you made too, that oftentimes we don't, we think, you know, if our kids are going to put sugar on their cereal or something like that, that it's like, oh, well, they're adding all this sugar, but they're still eating less than what might be in those processed foods. So bringing in more of those, you know, those less refined options and letting them choose what they want to put on can help them to develop maybe more of a palate for some of these more natural sweet, you know, sweeter foods like fruit and things like that versus the like highly processed foods. And Emily, I loved that cookbook idea. And I, I oftentimes ask my kids, this is part of my kind of meal planning process. I always ask them what they would, they get to choose a fruit and a vegetable for their lunches, for their school lunches. They get to choose a fruit and a vegetable and a main. So each one of them gets to choose and they We just mix and match for them, but we, and I will get my kids in the kitchen to cook with me um, probably once a week, not all the time, (laughs) not super mom over here, but I love the idea of getting a cookbook and having them go through and flag. Cause I'm like, my four-year-old would love to do that. And I've never done that with her. My eight-year-old has her own kids cookbooks that will cook out of every so often. And so she'll do that naturally herself. She's my little chef, but my four-year-old is the one who is a little bit harder generally other than breakfast yeah. breakfast is easy for her but the other meals are not <laughs> yeah so that's such a I've, great idea yeah mm. it's amazing really the times I've done it with my boys I've been really surprised with some of their selections because they are things that I didn't think they would want yeah um, but then see the great thing is then it was their idea yes <laughs> <laughs> so when it's their idea it goes over a lot better than when it's the, you know my idea yes yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that was this. That was a situation yesterday. I was actually testing a breakfast burrito recipe. A lot of get back on the topic of breakfast. A lot of the people that or the women that I work with in my community struggle with breakfast for their kids a lot. Coming up with ideas for their kids, and so you know, I was coming up with well, it's an old recipe that I was kind of redoing, making these breakfast burritos. There's beans and there's eggs and there's cheese if you want it and salsa and we dip it in guacamole again. Um, and they're I think they're delicious. My um, older daughter won't eat them because they've got eggs in them. My husband thinks they're delicious. But a lot of kids, if they eat eggs, love them. I didn't think my younger daughter would eat it. And I just had them sitting there. She was hanging out with me. She was painting a picture as I'm making these. And she's like, I want one of those for lunch. And I was like, you do. I wasn't like, this is what you're going to have for lunch. I fully expected to make her a completely different lunch. It was right around lunchtime. And I was like, okay. So she's like, but can you cut it in half? It's too big. I was like, absolutely. So I cut Mm. it in half and she sat there and she ate the whole thing. And I was like, Mm. wow, that is, I mean, and it was packed with protein and fiber and she loved it. And I was like, all right, well, I think it's, it's a good example of just when our kids just get the choice and when it's just there, sometimes they're like, oh yeah. I would like to try that, which is very cool. Yeah. And something else that's great about what you're saying too, is, um, is something that we've also focused on in the book about flexibility across meals. So a lot of these things that you make, you know, say like you might make a frittata at dinner that can easily be breakfast the next day as well, Mm -hmm. or like put into a packed lunch. Um, and I think broadening kids' horizons um, for breakfast is really important too. And we have an international breakfast challenge in the book that gets mm-hmm. kids to think about how in other countries, you know, some of the breakfast foods are more similar to what might be at lunch or dinner. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it can make your life easier and kind of just broaden their taste in general. Like tonight, my kids had black beans as part of their dinner and they really mm-hmm. enjoyed them. Yeah. And so I said, you know, I see you guys really like this. Do you guys want to have some of these at breakfast tomorrow morning too? And they're like, yeah. 
we want to have a yeah. breakfast also. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just it, breakfast foods don't have to be quote unquote breakfast foods, you know, <laughs> like it yes. can be what, you know, other foods that your kids like at other times of the day too. Yes. Yeah. I love that. And same thing for dinner too. We can also do breakfast for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> we can switch things love up and yeah. For dinner. Exactly. yeah, I yeah. think, yeah, I think kind of removing that, I guess the assumption that these certain foods have to be breakfast, these certain foods have to be dinner and just leading with, okay, what do our kids enjoy? And just bringing in some mm -hmm. more of these maybe new options and giving them that choice along the way is awesome. Okay. So you already mentioned some of the, you mentioned the energy bites in, um, in your cookbook or in your book, in the recipe part of your book, um, mm -hmm. which I love being able to have my kids. I'm just thinking right now, I'm like, well, we can have a sage energy bite and a ren. Those are my kids' names and a ren energy yeah. bite. They would love yeah. to have their own. <laughs> they would Definitely. love to have their own energy bite that they name themselves. What are some of the other recipes in the book? And, um, well, let's start with there. What are some of what are some of your favorite recipes in the book? Maybe your kids' favorite recipes in the book. My kids probably most like the chocolate. Well, they like all the recipes because they came up with them along with the, <laughs> along with us. Um, but my kids always like the roasted chickpea snacks, which are so mm. easy and high fiber and super affordable. And we just vary the seasonings, and they never. I'm just shocked that they're not tired of those yet. I'm just <laughs> waiting for the day when they're like no more chickpeas, but they. <laughs> really want those. And um, they love the chocolate sesame squares, which are a no-bake recipe. And um, those are really easy to make and super satisfying and really chocolatey and just a great treat. Um, healthy, of course, at the same time. Um, I personally, we've we've had a lot of fans of our blueberry muffin recipe, and that's been um that was a hard one to develop, but really <laughs> worth it in the end because I'm really happy with how those came out and um and it's, you know, I wanted the, all the recipes to be easy. So one thing I really like about the, that recipe is that you just put everything in the food processor or the blender mm -hmm. and, you know, you don't need separate bowls for mixing. Um, and it's a great way to use ripe bananas that you probably have laying around on your counter. Um, and we, you know, we make the recipes flexible for different dietary needs too. So that one um, has a, well, it's dairy free, but it also has a vegan version. We've got a grain free version, We've got a nut free option um, for replacing the, the almond flour. Um, so yeah, we've got a lot of really good versatile recipes and then we have savory recipes as well for dinner um, options and snacks and lunches, mm. sauces. There's a few sauces, there's some drinks. Awesome. Oh, all those sound delicious. <laughs> I think it's so important too, that there are versatile options because everyone eats a little bit different. Kids have kids and parents have different, you know, food allergies, food intolerances, and it's, it's hard. I'm sure it is hard, you know, as someone who likes to develop healthy recipes myself, I'm not a baker though. I think I have two muffin recipes that I've developed because they baking recipes are really hard. And when you're talking about reducing sugar, um, especially kind of encouraging our kids to go from what they might have enjoyed before to some of these lower sugar options can be really hard. So I very much appreciate you creating these recipes that, uh, you know, so, so we don't have to try and figure it out, figure it out Thank ourselves. You. Yeah. The baking ones are definitely more tricky. Um, but mm. you know, if you're not following, you know, one of our recipes and we do give other tips too. Like mm -hmm. if you're making just a standard recipe, something you can do is just try cutting the sugar down. So, mm -hmm. you know, you might find it enjoyable at um, three fourths the amount of sugar, or even half the amount of sugar. 
Um, so we do give a lot of practical tips that apply across no matter what type of you know recipe that you're making that you might find on the internet or that you might have in your family um, that you know you want to still use, but you can kind of make these tweaks, these easy tweaks to make it a little bit you know more sugar proof, say. Mm. We could collab- we could collaborate, for example, if there's like a favorite recipe you have. Chris, like, so our, the challenge we love is to say, here's a favorite recipe. How can we do it without added sugar? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what we've kind of tried to challenge ourselves with because the, the easy solution is just to add sugar or sugar substitute. Um, but we challenge ourselves to do it without added sugar or sugar substitute. And there's lots of fun ways to do that. Oh, so send I us a favorite that. recipe. Send us a favorite favorite <laughs> yeah, baking I recipe. Should. Give oh us my a gosh. challenge. I should. We don't we don't cook with a lot of sugar in our house, mostly because I don't mm. bake. <laughs> so yeah. if my kids have it. So our approach is generally to you know, have more of, and I'm not saying my kids are, I'm going to take your advice to heart and there's definitely snacks. That's the hardest part for us or snacks Mm. for our kids, uh, because I think snacks for kids, so many of them are just, you know, they're chips or crackers or bars or things like that, that are very high in, you know, added sugar. Mm -hmm. And there's no, there's no fiber and protein, which is really the, the big, the big thing, you know, it's not about again, cutting it out, but it's about adding in that, that fiber and that protein so that they're a little bit more balanced. Right. Um, but we have a, we have a granola bar recipe that's really good. Oh, that would be great. Cause my, my older daughter really loves granola bars for snacks. Um, my younger daughter kind of, you know, was hit or miss with, with the granola bars, but those are really hard, especially finding snacks for school too. Um, that's difficult too, especially because a lot of, when I do bake, I use a lot of alternative flours, like almond flour. My older daughter can't bring that to school because they have to be, you know, nut free. And, uh, so that it can be really hard. And so, yeah, I think our approach is sort of, we, we try not to have a ton of those foods in our house, but we don't restrict them either. So we're like, well, when they're out and about, they're going to have the birthday cake. But I think you kind of mentioned something similar to that earlier, Emily, which sort of like we, you know, we try to have those healthier alternatives in our house yeah. and that's what our kids eat on a regular basis. Not that we never have them, but we try not to eat those on a regular basis. And we try to, um, you know, just have those when we're out. But the only reason I think I don't use, it is hard to cook with alternative sugars or to cook lower sugar or bake, I should say lower sugar, um, meals just so I don't do it a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. So do you have favorite sugar alternatives or lower sugar options for recipes? You say you don't prefer to use um, sugar alternatives very much, but I'm thinking like honey or maple syrup. Is that something that you would suggest as an alternative? That's typically what I use baking. So you can totally call me out if you're like, eh, it's still sugar. <laughs> what do you prefer to use? Just reducing it or what is your go-to? Well, yeah, so reduce it for sure. But you know, we, I have maple syrup and honey in my toolbox uh, mm-hmm. in the kitchen. So those are still added sugars, but I think they're at the healthier uh, end of the spectrum. They're less processed, but they're still added sugars. I like the flavor of them too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and you can control how much you use. For example, yeah. if, you, if your daughter makes a smoothie and, you know, wants to add a little squirt of honey, that's perfectly, uh, perfectly fine. We're not here to nickel and dime little squirts of sugar here and there or sweeteners to, to 
because that's you know helps enjoyment of food, which is important. Mm -hmm. So taste is important. Uh, we're not big on the alternative sweeteners, even the naturally occurring ones like stevia and monk fruit, uh, because well, first of all, we just don't know how they're affecting the body mm -hmm. that well. There's not a lot of studies, certainly not in kids. But also, they just don't taste good for many people. Mm -hmm. um, so why, why contaminate the taste of something when you can make something that tastes good? And what studies we do know show that they don't resolve this craving for sweetness. So you, I think mm -hmm. the issue here is not just about cutting back on sugar, but cutting down on sweetness in general. And so all of our recipes use natural um, sweetness of whole fruits like Emily said the bananas mm -hmm. in the muffins or we're not saying you should snack on dried fruits, but we can use dried fruits in mm -hmm. baking because yeah. they introduce sweetness, natural flavor and fiber and all the phytonutrients that comes along with that, that whole dried fruit. So for example, one of my favorites is the mango cornbread because it, mm. it's a cornbread, which I love, but it's, um, uses mangoes dried mangoes as the sweetener sounds so good <laughs> yeah <clears throat> so that's our strategy um mm. not to say i wouldn't bake something with sugar um i'll just try to use less of it and use some of the less process also i would include coconut sugar in there too mm. yes i've also used coconut sugar yeah I love that. I love this approach of just the awareness of how much sugar is creeping into our food and replacing or reducing. We're not totally taking everything away. We're not saying no sugar, never. We're talking about just balancing it out, making sure that, you know, we have those healthy alternatives for them. So, and giving our kids the choice too, so they can, you know, so they can start to, so this can start to be more of their norm rather than um, all of the, the sugary stuff that's on the market for them. So this is so yes. great. Oh my goodness. I, this is going to be so helpful for my listeners. And I, I know that your book is also going to be so helpful for my listeners. So any of my listeners who are listening and who wants to learn more about both of you and the work you do, can you share where they can connect with you um, and where they can get a copy of Sugar Proof? Yeah. So on social media, you can find us on Facebook or Instagram. Instagram is probably our most frequent um, place which is at Sugarproof Kids. That's how to find us on Instagram. Or our website is sugarproofkids.com. And the books are available wherever you're getting books these days. And it's available in whichever format you prefer, hardback, paperback, Kindle, audiobook. So wherever you're buying books, just search for Sugarproof. Awesome. I know your Instagram is awesome and there's a ton of great tips on there too. So they can go over and, and see your tips on Instagram. And I know you have some, Emily, you have some recipes on the website too, right? Is there yes. some recipes so on there too? Yeah. Developing new recipes yes. as well. So you can find a lot of different options on sugarproofkids.com and um, there's a way to filter there too. We're just we just added a new like filter system to our website. Mm. So you'll be, you'll be able to, you know, select if your kids are at a nut free school, you can select nut free, you know, dairy free, gluten free, um, you know, whatever it is, if you're a plant-based family, you can find lots of options there as well. Awesome. 
Perfect. So they can go and they can check out some of the recipes while they're waiting for their book to come in. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. Thank, thank you so much, both of you for being here, for sharing this information with us. It's so important. And I really love this balanced approach to reducing sugar for our kids, for our families, for all of us as a whole. Um, and I think the work you're doing is so powerful for families. So thank you again. Thank Thanks, you so Chris. Much, Chris. Yeah. Thank you so much. To chat with you. Thank you. I listen to a marriage podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Healthy Balance Mama podcast. If you loved it, would you take a screenshot and share it with a friend over on Instagram and tag me in it? It helps me so much to know what you love and are taking away from each episode. If you really loved it, would you hop over to iTunes and give me a star rating and review? Every rating and review helps this podcast be seen and heard by more women who need to hear the message of balance and wellness without deprivation. It's the best free gift you could give me. And as a reminder, the information and opinions on this podcast are meant for education and inspiration only and are not to be taken as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult with a trusted practitioner before making any changes. Have a beautiful day, friend, and I'll see you in the next episode.